All right, if you'd like to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. thought we'd spend the next few Sundays looking at some Old Testament prophecies of Christ and Christ's birth. Try and give us some context and put us into the right mindset as we move into Christmas. Which is only a few days away at this point. Less than a month. So Isaiah chapter 9 is probably some very familiar... Um, passages for you. I'm going to start with verse 2, primarily because verse 1 is probably should be attributed to the chapter prior to it. In fact, in many Hebrew texts, it's included in the chapter above and not with chapter 9. But let me start with Isaiah chapter 2 through verse 7. It reads as follows, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shined that has multiplied the nations and not increased the joy, the joy before thee, according to the joy in the harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for that has broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor in the day of Midian for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments roiled in blood and shall be the burning, the fuel of the fire. For unto us is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon the kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth ever forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so here we have some beautiful scriptures. You are probably aware Isaiah has quite a bit to say about the coming of the Savior. In many different parts of the uh, book of Isaiah, we see not only the uh, foretelling of Christ's coming, but also of his death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And so we can look back in in the Old Testament to look forward to see and understand what is coming in the new. So I want to take just a few minutes and look at this passage today as we consider and think and look ahead to the time that we will celebrate Christ's birth and arrival to this world. Of course, it begins talking about the people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. And here we get the idea that darkness is this idea of judgment and the effects that it has on us. And light represents the deliverance. And of course, we should remember, as this uh, chapter talks about, and as we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ and he himself talks about, that we are born into darkness and we are born blind because of sin. This is very difficult for us to really understand, and perhaps we would do well to have more darkness around us than we currently do. Our modern technology has allowed us to basically have light at any point and just instantly get light, and it wasn't always that way. In fact, it hasn't been till very recently has it been that way. The problem is we are so used to the darkness that we don't even realize that we're in it. In fact, we have words to describe this sometimes. We talk about uh, those who are lost. Well, really, you're not really lost if you want to. We can kind of parse the definitions. But you're not really lost until you realize you are. 
And that moment in time when all of us have gone through life not realizing that we're blind and somehow the Spirit of God has made us aware of just how lost and blind we are, then we begin to seek out that light, that which saves us. And so the goal of a lot of preaching then is to awaken those, to allow that glimpse of light to be had from those who are wandering around in the dark. You don't even realize that you're lost. And what this is telling us is that there are people, all of us, who are wandering around in darkness, not even having any idea that we can't see. And that light is Jesus Christ that comes into the world that is going to give us a a spiritual light that we can then see the things that are going on. We no longer have to grope around as those who are blind, looking for which way to go, not knowing what's in front of us. But we can look to the one who is the light. And so we see this time when the people were walking in darkness, not knowing which way to go, waiting for that light to come. And that light would come when Jesus Christ comes. So let me turn over, if you will, for just a minute and read the first chapter of John. And we see this concept carried forward. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see this idea beginning in the Old Testament and carried forward that we are all born into darkness. We are all stumbling around. We are unable to find the way. And what we are ultimately waiting for is that light as in Jesus Christ to come into the world to give us guidance, to show that we are blind, to save us and give us that light that we can see. Here we see um, John talking about... um, John the Baptist saying he was not the light himself, but he was witnessing to and bearing witness to the light. And so we must be very careful today to make sure that we do the same thing, that we are witnessing uh, to the world and saying, Jesus Christ is the light. Jesus Christ is the one who came into the world. um, And we are simply to bear witness of who that light is. That is the gospel that we should be sharing at all times. It's a great tragedy that the world is walking in darkness and doesn't even know it. It's a great tragedy that many, many thousands of people who think they are walking in the light, in fact, are in the dark and are blind. And the shadow of death, as it says here, has come upon them. But then the light shines forth. We look at verse 3. It says, Thou hast multiplied the nations... And I want to make one note that King James 
Uh, probably has a, a slight error here. It says, and not increase the joy. It's not really saying that joy wasn't increased, but you could say has not. Well, let me rephrase that. It's better to drop that not. And basically he's saying is increase the joy to no end is what that's really saying. And therefore, the according to the joy of the harvest and the men rejoice as they divided. This idea that God is coming out of the darkness, he is bringing forth the light, which is Jesus Christ, and that from this we will have joy, we will have light, and it will increase, and eventually, as it says later in this passage, it will increase without end. And it's also very important to notice who is doing this. It is not I who is doing it. It is not you who is doing it, but it is God or thou hast, or your version may say thou hast, or you have multiplied the nations and brought forth joy. This idea that it is God who is going to do this great thing. Many times we hear a gospel preached that is incorrect or insufficient when it, somehow it seems that something I can do to bring forth the light. But the reality is there is nothing good in me, end of story. And we must totally rely on the Lord to do it. He is the one who will multiply joy. He is the one who will increase the joy. And he is the one who will see it to the end. It has nothing to do with me. And we'll see that clearly here in just a second. Verses 4 and 5 uh, continues on and it talks about this oppressive yoke that we are under. We've talked about what it means to be yoked to something. We are in bondage. We are in slavery to sin and to death. And we forget sometimes just how heavy that burden truly is. Just like we cannot realize we're walking in darkness because it's always dark. Sometimes we can forget just how heavy the sin burden is in our lives because we seem to be always bearing it up. We often forget that the burden that we carry because of sin not only is heavy to our lives, but ultimately leads to our death, both our physical death and our spiritual death and separation from him. But thankfully, Christ came, as we're reading here, to take this burden away. And we see in Matthew 11, Come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here we again have this idea that we cannot carry this burden on our own. We cannot uh, come out from underneath the sin that is around our shoulders and around our necks and leads and guides us and so much that we have to do. But we have to come to Christ who is able to take this off of us. And he is the one who is able to carry this for us when we are unable. And what we find in reality is when we're willing to go to him and to confess our sins and to seek forgiveness and to have him take our sins off of us, that the burden he does place on us is light and easy. It is not hard what he has us to do. It is not heavy. His burden is light. And so if you feel like you're carrying around a heavy burden today, then it's clearly not from the Lord. God wants us to follow after him. He wants our burden to be light and to be easy. He wants us to be with him in all that he does. And he will not place a heavy burden on us. We also know that this victory that we're talking about, this idea that the yoke and the burden is not there, is also really talking about one that is supernatural, as in our salvation because of what Christ has done for us. 
And it even gives us an example here. In verse 4 it says, Thou hast broken the yoke of this burden, and the staff of the shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For my Bible scholars out there, you remember that Midian was the story and the battle that broke out uh, with Gideon. Gideon, uh, well, the Hebrew people at that time were being oppressed by the Midians for years and years and years. And there was very little food, very little freedom. And it seemed like there was no way out. No one had risen up to champion their cause. And they were continuously being burdened by those. And if you remember, God finds Midian, I'm sorry, God finds Gideon threshing wheat down a little valley so no one can see him trying to hide what little bit he had just so he can have some food. That's how bad things were. That's how bad the burden was. And God shows up and tells Gideon, no, you're going to be my man. You're going to go. You're going to fight. You're going to lead the charge for me. And Gideon gathers together a, a fairly large army. And God looks at it and says, no, you're going to have to get rid of a bunch of them. In fact, Judges 7, 2, it says this, Then the Lord said to Gideon, There are too many people with you for me to hand over Midian to them. Otherwise, Israel will boast against me, saying, My own power has rescued me. And so we see an amazing lesson here, as I just told you, that God has to be the one to carry our burden. We cannot do it ourselves. And even in this case, when there was a great battle to be won, God was teaching us a lesson. Many of us probably know the Sunday school story. Gideon narrowed down the the army through God's requirements down to around 300 people. And they went against a great army. In fact, also, in Judges chapter 7, it says that, um, that the army that they were going against was as thick as locusts. It says their camels could no more be counted than the sands of the sea. And so here we see this setup of an amazing battle that takes place. And of course, Gideon's army and God specifically is victorious in this miraculous way. It is simply impossible for 300 men armed with swords and torches in a pot to conquer an army that couldn't be counted. But with God, all things are possible. And so we see again this idea that Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to carry the burden that is impossible for me to carry. The one that crushes me, that leads to my death physically and my death and separation spiritually, that Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to take that burden. He is going to break it from off of me and he's going to set it on his shoulders because he and only he is the one who can truly bear the penalty and the burden for my sins. And if we think somehow we have anything to do with this, the scripture clearly tells us just as it was in the days of Midian when, trust me, the 300 people had nothing to do with it. God saved them. You have nothing to do with your salvation either. It is only your faith and obedience. And so we see this set up here. We had this great problem. We're walking in darkness. We are blind. We do not see the light that is around us. We are carrying a heavy burden of sin and separation from God that leads to all manner of horrible things. That, but there is a God who wants to break this off of us, who wants us to carry a yoke that is easy and light that belongs to him, who wants to come underneath us and take us this yoke. And who on earth will do this? We see this question asked over and over again. If you read the scriptures carefully, you will see it in the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Who will save us? How shall we be saved? 
And this chapter answers that question. How will we be saved as in the day of Midian? How will the staff be broken? How will the yoke be broken? Well, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. Let me just go through this verse piece by piece. Seems really counterintuitive, doesn't it? We need to have someone who's going to save us. Someone who's going to be the light to help us see the truth. Someone who's going to take the burden off of us. And God says, I'm going to send you a little baby. Little tiny thing. Can't take care of himself. His mom and I guess his stepdad. They'll have to do it. A little tiny baby who'll fall and stub his toe and learn to live like us. It doesn't make any sense when we stop and think about it. But that's the beautiful part about it. God in his own infinite glory and wisdom decided to do it this way. And unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You'll notice that it's present tense. Because it's already happened. Again, we should be reminded that there is no time to God. God is outside of time. We cannot think about being outside of time because we've only ever been inside of it. Just like if you've never seen light, you can't imagine what it's like if you're in the dark. And just like if you've never had the burden of sin that rolls away when Christ breaks that burden, you can't imagine what it's like. And so we can't even begin to imagine what it's like. A child is already born. I thought about teaching on this for a while, but I've decided not to. Let's just suffice to say there are many, many scriptures, and we've talked about it before, that clearly emphasize that God was and is. First chapter of John tells us that alone. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We see that in the beginning, Christ existed as a part of the Godhead. He physically took on form at some point later in, quote, time. But in reality, it had already happened because there is no time. So he can say to us, for unto us a child is born, not will be born, not was born, but is present tense born. And unto us a son is present tense given. It says the government shall be upon his shoulders. I dare say this verse might be misinterpreted a few times and even occasionally abused. What I want to make clear is there's a couple different ways to translate it. Here's a couple of them. And the dominion is on his shoulder. Or upon his shoulder rests dominion. Or he shoulders the responsibility. Or authority rests on his shoulders. What this doesn't mean, let me reread it here. It doesn't mean, and the government of the United States shall be on his shoulder. Or the government of this county, or this state, or fill in where you're at. What it means is that Jesus Christ, when he comes, has all authority given to him and is resting on his shoulders. It could mean that there's a um, insignance, and we see this in the military sometimes, they wear something, an epitaph on their shoulder to signify their authority and what responsibility they have. But it goes deeper than that, and what it's truly saying is that he has dominion over everything, that everything rests on him. 
The burden that he carries is total and complete. He will take the burden of my sin and he will overcome that. He has the burden of the entire world resting on him. And you know what? He can carry it. You ever had a time when you felt like you couldn't carry the weight that was placed on you, the burden that you have? God can and God does and God is. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Later in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, and you can mark that if you want to, 22 and verse 22, it says this, And the key to the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And from this, we get the idea again that Jesus Christ, when he comes into this world, will have all responsibility placed upon him. He will have complete and absolute authority over everything. Now, the increase, I'm sorry, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then it goes on and tells us about who, in fact, this person is and what his character will be like. And it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, we've studied on this before. Again, in some translations, there might be a comma between Wonderful and Counselor. It's very likely it's saying a Wonderful Counselor, not two different things. An extraordinary person. One who plans a miraculous thing. Extraordinary. Beyond belief. He is one who can give us a charge, who can give us guidance that is absolutely beyond belief. And for those of us who ever again tried to carry your own burden and finally let the Lord have it and given in to his way and his will, you will know what we all know and we've done that is he is an extraordinary or a wonderful counselor. The ways in which he has us do things are not our ways. And we've studied that before too. And so we know that he is going to come unto us as a child that all authority will be uh, lifted onto his shoulders and that we will call him a wonderful counselor. He is extraordinary. Why? Because he has the spirit of God resting on him and because he is in perfect obedience with God because he is God. In fact, the scriptures call him here the mighty God. This is very likely a reference to Christ's divinity, uh, divinity. And in fact, it is used as such multiple times. It is important to remember that Jesus Christ is not just another king, an earthly king. He is not just a good teacher, but he is in fact, the scripture claims, and he himself claims as well, is God. He is the mighty God. And we must never, ever, ever forget who and what Christ is. That even though he came as a child, he took on the form of a man, yet retained a portion of his holy divinity, and he is God. Something I hope to discuss a little more in the next few weeks. Is the everlasting Father. I want to talk about this for just a minute. Again, I don't think this is trying to say or confuse the fact that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What I think this is saying is that He is the everlasting Father toward us. 
That he is going to father us. That he is going to take care of us. And he is going to give us guidance. He is going to help us. He is going to be the good father that all of us desire to be or desire to have. That he is going to lead us into all righteousness. That he is going to help us do the things that we want to do. He's going to encourage us and lead us. Forever he is going to be a father to the world. He's going to be fatherly in his guidance. And lastly, it says he is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Of course, if we go back to the few previous verses, we'll see that without him there is no peace. You see, this again closes this loop and reminds us that we are separated from God and that we actually have no peace. We are blind and lost in a dark and dying world and have no peace with God until a son is given to us, until he is born, until he is tempted in all ways like us, until he is uh, without sin yet is crucified on my behalf. Then he becomes the prince of peace in my life and I have peace eternal. Not necessarily peace in this world. In fact, he himself says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. The peace that Christ gives us, the Prince of Peace, is an internal peace. It is the peace that we now have between God and between us. He has restored that relationship. He has broken the bonds that were on my shoulders. He has taken them upon himself. He has died for us. He has conquered death. And now I can have peace with God. And I can have it everlasting. That makes him the prince of all peace. And again, those of us who are here today who have experienced the power of this peace know firsthand what I'm talking about. It goes on in verse 7 it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. His dominion is vast, it doesn't end. His peace continues to grow. There is no end to what he has control of. There is no end to the peace and the relationship that we have with him. It is vast. It increases and there is no end. He will bring, you could say, immeasurable prosperity. Now you may not get physically everything you want because again we're talking about things that are spiritual. But we can have eternal, lasting peace and prosperity with him. It goes on to talk about how he will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom. And I already read to you later on in chapter 22 where it talks about how you have the the keys on his shoulders. That whatever he closes will be closes and whatever he opens will be opened. He has complete and final control promotes justice and fairness. From henceforth, even forever. And the last part of this is important. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, or you might read, accomplish this. Zeal, it is an intense devotion to and love, in this case for his people, which prompts him to vindicate them and to fulfill his promises to David and the nation. We don't use that word very often, zeal or a zealot. We see it in Scripture sometimes. It was probably used a lot more in days gone by. 
But this idea of zeal, this intense devotion we have for something, is probably really only applied to like sports and things that we really love anymore. This intense desire to make something happen. Brothers and sisters, this is an important part of it, though. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God's desire for you. His zeal, the intense devotion that he has for you and I will, in fact, bring this about. His desire is that we are no longer dark, but that we see the light. His desire is no longer that we would carry around the burden of our sin, but that he would break it and place it on his only son who is in this world, who came to die for you. His zeal and his desire is to restore that relationship, to send us a son, to let the government be on his shoulders, that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And of his increase, there shall be peace to no end. That is God's desire for your life. He wants you to see the light. He wants you to know his son and he wants to restore the relationship with him. And God in his zeal is going to accomplish his will because his son will be obedient to what God tells him to do. And in response, you must also be obedient to God. You must come before him, confessing your sins and seeking salvation. The reality is, not everyone will. The reality is, some people will stay in darkness because they like the darkness. They will have been aware of the great light, and they will, instead of choosing light, they will choose darkness, and therefore earn, rightfully so, eternal damnation and separation from God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Why? Because unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. That child is Jesus Christ. The Lord does these things because he loves us so much. And the reason that we are still here in part is because he is giving us one more opportunity to love him back. If we would only go to Jesus Christ, if we would only go to the one that's being talked about here, the child who was born before us, and let him take the burden of our sin away from us and simply come under his desire and his burden, we will find our lives are easy. His burden is light. The peace is without end. His kingdom is growing and growing and growing. But we refuse to do that. In our own pride, we would just rather stay in the darkness. Or we try to do it on our own. Many of us have tried in any way possible to get this burden off of our back. And I mean the spiritual sin burden that we carry. But the reality is there is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We must go to him. Just like it was impossible for Gideon's army to truly defeat the enemy, it is actually impossible for you to save yourself. You must go to him. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. 
He is our everlasting Father who wants to lead us into all righteousness. And He is the Prince of our peace. Our everlasting peace. And so as we look ahead to the next few Sundays, as we consider, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, as we get closer and closer to the time that we celebrate Christ's arrival in the most innocent and unassuming way possible, let us not forget why he came. Let us not forget how he came. Let us not forget that in that manger laid a wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God who came to save us from our sins, to abolish the burden, to break the yoke that has weighed us down, to take my place and your place, to increase our joy and our peace to no end, to overcome every battle and every war. And let us look Unto him, author and finisher of our faith. He and he alone is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. And if you do not know him today, there is an opportunity for you to do that. If you have never met God, if you've never had your eyes open to see just how blind you are, then I pray that you would have your eyes opened. That when you are open, when you realize how good God is and how much He desires you and how much He came to uh, take that burden away, that you would follow after Him, seek after Him, that you would pray to Him and ask Him for forgiveness of your sins. And that when they are, you would then know the Prince of Peace, the peace that passes all understanding. So let's have a hymn. Time for you to consider whether you know the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God. And if you don't, if you are still blind, And I pray that you would seek him out and allow him to take the burden that you cannot lift and carry alone and put it on himself as he grows up and goes to Calvary for you and for me.